And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Manufacturing Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm your host for this show, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is the program where we look at manufacturing through both a telescope and a microscope. We look at the the big headlines, the big global economic and political headlines. There are many these days, and they have a great impact on U.S. manufacturing performance. But at this time of structural change, trade change, geopolitical change, we have to go deeper. We have to look at the science of manufacturing because that science is changing by the week. We have to look at the politics and the supply chains and the trade arrangements of manufacturing because that's changing by the week. The key word on my show is new, new science, new technology, new trade arrangements, new supply chain arrangements, new economic thinking. And we are here to help our listening audience understand how all of this will lead to a new day in U.S. manufacturing. We have the best guests, the guests who are the true experts in our field. Today, we have a gentleman joining us from Mumbai, India, Akrar Barua, and of course, our focus is going to be on that large emerging giant. It is understandable that China has been getting all the press attention lately. The U.S. is engaged in a difficult trade confrontation with China, which is having economic consequences around the world. But Asia is so important to the future of the world, to the future of the global manufacturing world, that we have to look beyond China. We have to look beyond this period. And there lies India. It is, India is now the second most populated country in the world. And demographers tell us that pretty soon India is going to pass China to become the most populated country in the world. It is the largest democracy in the world. And therefore, its future matters a great deal to the future of global manufacturing and ultimately to U.S. manufacturing. The gentleman who kindly is called in from Mumbai and is sitting there right now is somebody that we had speak at the National Economist Club. As many of you know, I've been serving as president this year. And he has a wonderful, deep, and interesting expertise in India. Akrar Barua, he is an economist and executive manager at Research and Insights, where he contributes to key publications at Deloitte Insights. He often writes on economic trends that have global and regional implications like central bank policy, trade, real estate cycles, and household debt. He also studies the U.S. economy, especially consumers, demographics, inequality, and housing. Accord joined Deloitte in May of 2013. Before that, he used to track key economies in Asia, Europe, and the Middle East for clients ranging from banks to government bodies. He has also been involved in development economics, where he studied the role of industrial clusters and the impact of colonial history on institutional development. Accor holds a BA, an MA, and a Master's of Philosophy in Economics. 
He loves reading, geopolitics, music, and movies. Sometime back, Accor was affected by the travel bug, and so began fascinating journeys across continents and the excitement of being part of a wider yet smaller world. Accor, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Cliff. It's great to be here. Let, let, let me start with a question that I think has been very much in the mind of many who follow the Indian economy. Recently, an argument has been put forth that India's economic growth rate has been consistently overestimated. Let me ask you, what, what is your view of this assertion? I think that assertion is pretty new. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't done any research on that, so I wouldn't be able to give you uh, too much on that. What we see, however, in the data, which is both official as well as private sector data, is that growth is indeed slowing, and that's an area of concern. So uh, whether you look at uh, national accounts data, whether you look at monthly consumption indicators, manufacturing, PMI numbers, and of course, credit numbers as well, it points to a slowdown in the economy. And, uh, you know, last year we had growth of uh, around about 7.4%, and this year we expect this to go down to 55 to 6%. So uh, that, that, is, that indicates that there is pretty much a slowdown. That is a sharp deceleration in growth, especially for such a large country. Let me ask you, in your view, are monetary and fiscal policies appropriate for current economic conditions? Uh, that's a good question because uh, one of the things that is important to do here amidst all the noise is to try to break down what is causing the slowdown in growth. And I'd like to pick up a few things, especially private consumption and investment. Um, if you look at consumption, for example, it has steadily gone down, and uh, it's nearly one-third the figure it was probably one or two years back. So you, with an economy that is 60% dependent on private consumption, I think uh, at the end of the day, such deceleration in growth is worrying. And then you have investments, which is more required for medium to long-term growth, and that has also slowed down. So we should be a little concerned, especially on those two fronts. Now, if you look at consumption, it's important to break it down. Remember, um, there's urban demand and there's a lot of rural demand as well. So if you look at the average urban consumer, you see that some of the purchases of, uh, you know, more expensive products has gone down, be it uh, motor vehicle sales, for example. Passenger vehicle sales are down for the 11th straight month in September. So that's the worry. Indicators in housing say that that has softened. Yeah, and in rural India, you have uh, the agricultural sector, which is critical for uh, for folks living there. And, and uh, agriculture hasn't done well, especially over the last three quarters. And you see some of those impact uh, kind of percolating down to rural demand. So I think from a consumption perspective, it's important to break those two out. Now, consumption is interesting for the short term. Uh, let's look at investment. Uh, and in investment, you see, of course, you have demand slowing down, so naturally businesses uh, will take their time investing. But on, on the investment side, one of the critical factors, uh, and I keep speaking about this everywhere I go, is that um, 
the accumulation of bad assets in the banking and non-banking financial sector, that is the cause for worry. And, and I think you still have a phase where, um, you know, banks are cleaning up their books, uh, indebted companies are deleveraging. So I think it'll be a year or two at least before Indian companies start, you know, moving on the investment front. Now, you asked me about, uh, you know, policies, both monetary and fiscal, and, uh, Having seen these two components, I think one of the good things that has happened is that uh, the central bank, the Reserve Bank of India, as we call it, now that has lowered rates, uh, 135 basis points, if I'm correct, uh, since the beginning of the year, and you can expect another 25 basis points cuts. So that's easing policy, borrowing costs going down. Now, that's not enough, though. Remember, I talked about cleaning up uh, the banking sector, and I think the NPA ratios have gone down. But at 9.3%, it's still a long way to go. The other thing, and I think this is the second part that's keep coming up, is that in the non-banking financial sector, we have, a, we have exposure to a, a weakening real estate sector. So I think it's not only about interest rates, how the central bank and authorities move forward in recapitalizing banks um, in, in handling the stress in the non-banking financial sector. That will be very critical, so keep your eyes out on that. And from the fiscal side, I think there have been interesting reforms, Cliff. Um, I don't know whether you guys heard of this, but, um, you know, some days back, uh, India cut the corporate tax rate, and we have made it much more competitive. So I think that's a boost more for the medium to long term, but I think competitiveness is essential. I, you know, in the introduction, you said, said something about manufacturing, how it is important. And I think from India's perspective, businesses here, as well as foreign companies, I think they would benefit from that. And I think there have been a lot of front-loading on infrastructure spending as well, but that's more for the short run. So I think the next two quarters are critical, both in determining how the data goes forward on these fronts and what actions the government takes. And I'm very excited to see what more reforms come out of the finance minister's box. Well, you mentioned manufacturing, and let me ask you about, let's take a somewhat longer-term view here and think about India's climb up the development curve. For the benefit of our viewers, and for the benefit of our listeners, I should say, the economics literature talks about manufacturing as having a very special place in the development curve. It is what brings labor off of subsistence, agriculture, into higher productivity manufacturing, and that increases the labor productivity of the population, and that in turn increases the growth rate of the um, the economy over the long term. This this was a paradigm, again, for the benefit of our listeners, developed really in the 1950s by Sir Arthur Lewis, really one of the, the great economists of the 20th century. Now, let, let's turn to the current Indian circumstance, Akrar, and let me ask you, given what I just explained, is the industrial sector, is manufacturing going to play this classic role of propelling India to faster labor productivity growth and thus faster long-term economic growth, or is there something different these days? 
I'm glad you asked that question because it's a very interesting one that a lot of people uh, in India are still researching on and still thinking about. I get your point. Uh, I think one of the ways you need to look at the future of manufacturing in India is, uh, of course, from the point of view for the traditional shift from agriculture to manufacturing. I mean, how do you get um, 66% of the rural population dependent on agriculture out of that, or most of them out of that, into, into more productive sectors? Now, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, the way I look at it is that we, we didn't go through the traditional movement from agriculture to manufacturing to services. Ours was mostly a jump. And uh, the good part, I believe, from that is that we do have lessons in services. If you ask the question, for example, how, how did India move up um, in, in uh, information technology, for example. So if you answer those questions, you will find the consistent theme is that, you know, to become more competitive in that sector, uh, we opened up the reforms of 1991, for example, and we kept on building on that. I think manufacturing needs that in a way. Uh, we still haven't had the big ticket reforms that it, uh, applies to manufacturing. Because look at it this way, Cliff. Uh, you have an economy which is large as the size of India. And if you look at, let's say, you know, consumption on the part of consumers as well as businesses, you have potential demand for manufacturing that ranges from, uh, let's say, in electronics to defense from food processing to refining. So I think when you look at that, it's just a question of how do you make it more competitive manufacturing as a sector. And I think there are lessons from services as well. Now, um, the second part I believe is critical and it goes with the theme of what you said in the beginning is if India wants to be the really true global economy, I think it cannot but integrate into global manufacturing value chains. And I think, again, the experience in services is important because these days, uh, as you might be knowing uh, even better than me, there is more incorporation of services into manufacturing. So I think some of the footprints are already there. Uh, the question is, oh, what are the steps essential? And, and I think, um, you know, from, from, uh, uh, from the perspective of not only manufacturing, but you, how you get India to be a more integrated global economy, a global powerhouse. I think a couple of points you have to keep in mind. One is, what are the policies enabling investments? So, for example, uh, you have the reforms of 91. Recently, I told you about the corporate tax cuts, which will make it more competitive. competitive. We need more of that to encourage businesses. Um, Closely related to that is labor reforms. Uh, I think a um, lot of state governments ha have enacted labor reforms in a way, but in a very small scale in places called special economic zones where you, you, know, you have a much more freer labor market. I think uh, economy-wide labor market reforms is very essential, and I think that's where uh, probably um, we should follow the data and the policy. Now, uh, the other thing that I keep talking to when I uh, meet policymakers or, you know, uh, economists is, is the mismatch in skills. And I think um, you do not, a company wouldn't want to invest 
would have a requirement for a number of skilled and semi-skilled workers, and then you find you have a skill mismatch. So I think at the end of the day, uh, skills development, uh, that is critical. And mind you, it cannot be done by the government alone. And this is where there's a lot of potential for the private sector to come in, uh, for the government to, you know, get together. And, it happened in a lot of technological hubs like Bangalore in the southern part of India. So you had educational institutions, you had, uh, you know, the software companies, the technology companies, you have the government moving forward on that. So I think that success needs to be replicated. Uh, the fourth thing is infrastructure. And I think if you compare Indian infrastructure with some of uh, the other countries in Asia, vis-a-vis -vis China, for example, I think we lag there. And till we get it done, uh, there are two parts to it. We can't connect the huge markets within India. So forget about exporting to the rest of the world. The idea is to first connect India as a market to each other. So I think that market is missing. And uh, finally, one of the things you have to realize is that any success in manufacturing is not standalone. There's new technology coming in. There's churning every uh, year, kind of. So it is essential that there is a very cohesive policy that keeps in keeps track of all these things. I know there have been a lot of efforts on digitization, on regulations and stuff like that, but I think we need a more comprehensive policy that takes care of not only manufacturing, but entire business uh, value chain um, and, and connect it to the rest of the world. So I think that's, that's the thing that will be important. Well, you talked about the labor market and an important driver of long-term labor market dynamics is, of course, demographics. One of the reasons I love talking about demographics is that it's, it's a force that is often bigger than governments are. So let me ask you, demographic data show that India has a young population with a median age that is still under 30 as compared to China, which has a median age of about 37, a big difference. So here's my, here's my worry. As young Indians enter the labor market in large numbers, is job growth going to be sufficient to absorb these new entrants? That's interesting that you say it because with the current pace of growth, I don't think that will be enough. Because remember, Cliff, it's not only accommodating the new entrants to the labor market, it's also dealing with human aspirations, which is always to go, grow higher. And I think at the end of the day, with 5% growth, we'll, we'll kind of just balance it out. If you look at data, uh, compare it between 2010 to 2017, 18, for example, labor force participation has come down. So at the end of the day, I think it's, it's an issue of concern because we are not only dealing with new entrants, we are also dealing with aspirations of the existing people who are employed. Um, and currently that is, you know, a worry. Now, um, I think this should be looked into, this entire thing about new people, young people joining the labor force, and how do we go about it for the next 10 to 15 years. I think the first question we should ask is, are enough jobs being created every year? Which is which was what your question is, uh, in a way. The second part, I believe, which is even more important, and I talked about it, are skills of job experience matching with the jobs being created? And I have heard of... in you know, numerous stories in industrial clusters where there are openings, but they do not have the skill level. 
you know, they cannot identify the talent pool. So I think there, there is something there in terms of connecting industry to uh, skills uh, and then, you know, having a smooth interconnection there. And I think that's where um, the challenge lies. Now, medium to long-term job creation, sustaining 8 to 9% growth uh, is impossible without adequate investments. And I think uh, some of the re recent reforms, that will help. But I also think that we need a lot of foreign direct investments. I think this is the right time. Um, the uh, the ability of the Indian economy, because macroeconomic fundamentals are sound, uh, to attract foreign investments is high. And I think this is where we should open up even more. We should have a third round of reforms right now. Uh, the other thing is that access to credit, and it's very closely related to investments, we cannot depend on our banks uh, as we did, especially our public sector banks, uh, to fund businesses again and again and again. I know we have equity markets as one particular avenue, but I think now's the time for the government, for policymakers, for the central bank to get together and get a well-functioning bond market in place. I think that'll do us a lot of good. So stress in one sector, you know, one avenue of credit doesn't get carried to the other. I think these are all interconnected things that we should be thinking about. I remember talking about skills. Now, uh, you know, I when I ask people, and I get different answers there, one good example is Bengaluru and the southern part of India, where you have a lot of engineering colleges, and uh, the talent pool coming out of there is where the software industry found its talent. Now, how do you create that for manufacturing? I know in India we have had uh, pretty much successes in some of the industrial clusters, but do we need skills clusters? Yes, and we need it desperately. So I think whether be it semi-skilled, whether be it high-skilled, I think there is a need there to have a, a policy in place where it's not just the government taking the brunt of the effort, but also the private sector. Think about Mittelstand in uh, Germany, probably. Uh, maybe a replication of that model, that will help. Mind you, we already have industrial clusters on board. We already have a good services sector. So I think to replicate some of these successes should be easier. And Cliff, uh, since in Deloitte we do a lot of research on new technology, and I keep talking to some of the experts in our field, uh, one thing we need to realize is the advent of new technology. Artificial intelligence, it's going to change the world. New technologies will keep emerging. How does India develop a policy which keeps into account such changes, such major disruptions? Because like you mentioned, it's it's a young population. The median age is around about 27, 28. So, and it's, 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 it's a young population which is which is ambitious, which has seen the external world, which has access to the internet. So it'll be naturally more ambitious than probably what I was 20 years back. So I think that is where the government's role and other stakeholders' role is critical. Let's stay just for a second on the topic of demographics, but this time let's switch to spatial demographics. Much of the world has been experiencing rapid urbanization, but India, at least the data show that India remains relatively rural with only about a third of the population residing in 
urban areas compared to about half for Asia as a whole. Why, why is this, and do you see it changing? I think, Cliff, we have to go back to the period of the 1991 reforms. Remember the development, the first development of the private sector t- took place since then. And I, if I look at these, you know, period from 1991, 92 t- till now, I think it's been a pretty decent pace of urbanization. Now, I know that's not enough, not equivalent to Asia or for that matter, the United States or the advanced economies, but I think the pace of urbanization is there, and I don't think that will change. It will only keep increasing. I mean, I'm sitting here in Mumbai, and uh, it has a population of around about 22 million. In New Delhi, uh, the population is something like 29 million. So together, New Delhi and Mumbai is nearly double the size of Australia in terms of population. Mm. Uh, let me just take you through some of the changes that have taken place. For example, um, if you again look at the last 20 to 25 years, one of the other things you find is the development of more metro cities. I talked about Bengaluru. It's a great example. Uh, new investments coming in, more talent required, more houses being built, and that's a very thriving city now. Um, Currently, when you look at it, uh, you see the development of Tier 2 and Tier 3 cities as well. Earlier, the entire focus was on Delhi, uh, Bombay, that is Mumbai, Calcutta, those kind of cities. Now you have a lot of Tier 2, Tier 3 cities developing, and I think that's good. And, you know, there are lots of new cities under construction as well, whether be it capital cities, whether be it uh, cities along industrial corridors. I think we'll see great changes in the next five to ten years. So I am not bothered about the pace of urbanization in a way, Cliff, but what I, I think about mostly is what is the nature of urbanization? Like, how will urbanization rise? Well, how will new cities rise in the ranks? And what does it mean for urban living and government? So, so you know, I know that you know, both federal and state administrations are looking at smart city concepts, trying to develop our cities. But I think um, working on transportation, digitization, power generation, affordable housing, water supply, remember, those are critical yeah. issues. So, yeah. so you need you know, I, I think you know we need to be asking more, both as citizens, mind you, as, as well as policymakers, is, hey, we are living like this. How do we live better with an eye on the environment, with an eye on waste management and stuff like that? And mind you, there is business to be done there. It's not that it's, it's a charitable thing. It's just securing the future, uh, ensuring better waste management, uh, having businesses in place to tackle that. So I think those will be interesting things to see in in the days and years forward. It's hard in any interview lately to ignore the U.S.-China trade fight. It is really the principal story for the short-term global economic outlook. But let me ask that question from a different perspective. In the long run, do you think that India will enjoy something of an external investment benefit from the US from US China trade tensions as well as the significant slowing in Chinese economic growth? Is India going to get a residual benefit from the consistent tension between US and China? That's interesting. Um I think Cliff, it all
all depends on how we take competitiveness forward as an economy. You know what? Some of these trade tiffs, it happens, it, it gets settled down. So I treat it more like external shocks if I were to look at it like a policymaker. I think if investments increase in India due to trade tiffs between the U.S. and China, well, that's good. But I don't think policymakers ought to be focusing too much on the short-term ramifications of that. What is critical is to, you know, increase competitiveness, you know, enhance the ease of doing business. If you have an open economy with less hurdles for starting a business, more foreign companies will come to India. More dom domestic businesses will thrive. And remember, India itself is a large market, and you can use it as a base to export to Asia. So cutting red tape, reducing the number of hurdles, uh, I think there should be less tinkering with taxation, make it more simplified, uh, increase digitization. That helps both businesses and consumers. And there's much more that we can do here, mind you. I mean, if you look at a scale of how digitization has progressed across different countries across the world, I think India has much more to go. And uh, the good thing is that there have been big ticket reforms also. The introduction of the goods and services tax made India a more unified market. So I think from that side, from an infrastructure perspective, from a competitiveness perspective, if we push forward, whether there be trade tips or not, uh, India will become more at attractive as an in investment de destination and they will t tend to benefit. Short-term benefits will come and go, I think, but if I were a policymaker, I'd be more focused on enhancing competitiveness for the long term. You mentioned red tape, and bureaucratic red tape has indeed been a challenge for India, and including in the manufacturing sector. Go with that a little bit. Is, is the bureaucracy, the bureaucratic red tape situation improving? I can see that improving. I mean, both uh, staying in India and also looking at some of the world ratings, world analysis, uh, credible analysis of India's competitiveness. So, for example, uh, I think between 2015 and now we have moved up around about 65 places uh, in the World Bank's doing index rankings, but we are still 77, so there's a lot of work to do. Uh, mm. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, improvements, rather, on dealing with construction permits, for example, trading across borders. And I think things like digitization, making it more competitive, uh, you know, the economy as a whole, improving infrastructure, that should help. But then again, there's a whole way to go to move to the top of the fact. Um, uh, you know, how you register property, enforcing contracts, resolving insolvency. Mind you, we have an insolvency mechanism in place. It's functioning, it's improving, but then again, there's a long way to go. So I think when you look at uh, India probably 15 to 20 to 25 years back and now, you'll see a whole lot of improvement as you go along. The interesting part, Cliff, is that, uh, and something that I like, is that there's a lot of competitiveness between the states in India as well. So there's a doing business rankings mm -hmm. for states as well, where states are ranked. Right. And I think that competitiveness in attracting business and making it easier to live uh, for consumers and establish businesses for businesses, that's what matters for success, right? So I think as as this culture of improving competitiveness builds in, I think we'll see some see some improvement there. And I think the government has in, 
invested a lot, this administration, previous administration, focusing on infrastructure. And I think if that accelerates with uh, private partnership, I think we'll become a fairly decent economy in terms of competitiveness in the next five to 10 years. At least I hope so. I'm, a, I'm positive on that. I like to be optimistic. That's interesting. You, you often think of red tape and bureaucracy as something for the public sector to, uh, to deal with, but there, there often can be market solutions to, uh, to red tape and bureaucracy. <laughs> Final question, Akrar, and it's truly in many ways a question about the future. Bureaucracy, as well as longstanding family businesses in India, can inhibit, or at least I fear it can inhibit, growth-enhancing entrepreneurship. Let me ask you, what is the state of business startups in India? Well, it's interesting that you ask that because um, one of the things I was attending a presentation probably a month back, and one of the things I learned there, by the way, is that India has the third largest ecosystem in, in terms of startups behind the United States and China. And uh, I think it, it connects this question that you ask, connects to the question on demographics. Now, uh, I know that Americans uh, don't know the game of cricket, but uh, I would have once in a presentation, I explained to my Australian colleagues in the change in culture uh, in terms of young people coming on board. So you have a young population uh, connected, better connected to the world, to the happenings around them through the internet. Uh, and, and they're much more confident. So you have not only people thinking about what they're going to do tomorrow, but the kind of institutions they're going to build, the kind of businesses they're going to build. So you have a very confident population, and they know very well what works in their favor. For example, they know domestic demand is great. Uh, consumers uh, need uh, solutions around mobility, for example. Uh, they can tap uh, technology in cities like Bangalore and Hyderabad. So, you know, the startup system is really encouraging. And uh, by the way, I don't mean the small, you know, big cities. Even when I go to smaller cities and I think uh, of new things opening up in tourism and other places, I think that's very, very encouraging. Uh, sometimes I feel like a culture shock, like I'm like, okay, when I graduated, I really wanted to get land a job, uh, pay off my education. But, uh, you know, young people nowadays are much more confident. So you have lots of investment flowing, uh, you know, uh, from outside India as well. Uh, I don't know whether you know this, but Walmart acquired an e-commerce giant Flipkart. And it was a startup for $16 billion last year. Uh, you have uh, global investors like Alibaba, Tencent, SoftBank. Uh, they are major investors. So you have a lot of names, be it in digital payments, be it in e-commerce, be it in transportation, uh, hospitality, food services. So I think there's lots of buzz around that. It is sometimes very exciting to see that. And uh, I believe as this culture spreads, it's not only the young people who will go forward. Uh, there are a lot of other people who will join the bandwagon, and I can see that already happening. So I think 
you know, despite family businesses, despite everything, and by the way, even family businesses will change. They will know what is required to be in this market where technology changes fast, where demand patterns need to be studied. So I think um, you, you're seeing a very vibrant change, something that vibrancy, I think, will uh, remain for many, many years to come. Agrobarua, Barua, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Cliff. Bye-bye. For our listening audience, this is going to be a regular feature of Manufacturing Matters. Just as we are going to have shows, have been having shows, we'll be having more shows that focus on specific industry sectors we are going to do more of this when we look at specific regions and countries. We know that there are certain countries that are very much in the news every day, but that doesn't mean that just because a country is not in the news every day that it's not critical to the future of the global manufacturing picture. India is critical to the global manufacturing picture. We will be looking at other countries that are up and coming and are going to shape the topology of global goods production and global trade. Many of those episodes to come. Until then, this is Cliff Waldman reminding you that manufacturing matters. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.